Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello, and welcome to Outlook. Uh, my name is Nigel Hewin, and this recording is being done on Wednesday, the 29th of March. And coming up in the next, uh, next 45 minutes, uh, sorry, an hour and a half or so, I should say, not 45 minutes, that's what used to be the side one, wasn't it? Uh, we'll be looking at the precinct as an iconic building in Coventry. There's the return of Baby Sham, that Champagne Perry of the 70s. And going back even further, Elaine finds out about Summer Holiday, Cliff Rich's famous song, and uh, film, of course. And Alice bringing us another story from Cynthia Townsend, this one called Something About China. Dave goes to the Music Museum in Coventry with a lad who used to help at its Exel Grange School. Uh, but that, of course, is the, the main news before we, the main headings, but, but also there will be the usual things of a report from the centre here, your post bag, and a rather different sport this week. But we're going to start, as always, with the news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. Bus services were set to return to normal on Monday after disruption last week and over the weekend due to industrial action. Drivers voted to accept a new pay offer on Saturday, bringing the strikes to an end. A severely reduced service ran on several days last week after buses were blocked from leaving the Coventry depot. At one stage, police were called to the scene and a woman was arrested. Despite the pay offer being accepted on Saturday, a reduced service ran on Sunday on all National Express West Midlands and National Express Coventry services, with services returning to normal on Monday. Transport for West Midlands said in a statement on Saturday, A ballot took place earlier this morning on Saturday where striking drivers had the opportunity to vote on the latest pay offer. With the offer having been accepted, a reduced bus timetable will continue to run tomorrow, Sunday, before services return to normal on Monday. The bus drivers voted in favour of accepting a 16.2% pay rise, bringing the industrial action to an end. More than 3,000 National Express drivers downed tools in the dispute. A spokesman for National Express Coventry said, We are pleased that the drivers have voted in favour of accepting the offer. We apologise to our customers and the communities we serve for the significant disruption and inconvenience this has caused over the last few weeks. We are pleased to be able to put this behind us and focus on delivering a bus service that customers can rely on. The BBC's Martin Lewis has taken to social media to defend people on universal credit and other benefits. It comes as the first payment dates for the UK government's cost of living payment support scheme were announced on Monday. The money-saving experts spoke out in response to criticism aimed at those receiving the initial payment of £301 from the Department of Work and Pensions. The DWP has confirmed that the money will be provided to many people on benefits, including universal credit, in an effort to assist the most vulnerable members of society 
as they struggle to cope with the rising costs of essential items such as food, fuel and power due to inflation. Lewis expressed his thoughts on the criticism and reminded his Twitter audience that many people on Universal Credit work. He added that some people are unable to work due to disability, illness or caring responsibilities. He also pointed out that some people in the middle may require assistance as well, but it should not be an us-versus-them situation. To be eligible for the first cost of living payment of £301, he must have been entitled to receive, or later found to be entitled to receive, universal credit, income-based JSA, income-related ESA, income support, pension credit, or tax credits for any day during the period of 26th of January this year to 25th of February this year. If your entitlement to these benefits is between one penny and nine pence, you are still eligible for the payment. However, you will not be eligible for the cost of living payment if you receive a nil award, which means that your benefit is reduced to zero pounds from the, for the qualifying period. This may happen if you receive more than one payment of earnings, your or your partner's earnings increase, your or your partner's savings increase, or you start receiving another benefit. Nevertheless, if any deductions are made for other reasons, such as payments of rent or debts, you may still be eligible for the payment. Coventrians will be able to take a look at and have their say on detailed proposals for the first phase of the more than £400 million City Centre South project. The exhibition will be held by project developers Shearer Property Regeneration Limited and is being held in Shelton Square today, Wednesday. But a second look at the plans will be held at the same place this Saturday, April the 1st, between 10 and 3. In January, the City Council agreed to change to the site's outline plans, including more homes and affordable housing, and a different amount of retail space. The plans were approved after the developers spoke to local groups and businesses last November. The exhibition will show the designs as well as information on the proposed time frame for the project to be delivered and people will be able to ask questions to project team members. This feedback will help ahead of the submission of a detailed planning application. If you are unable to attend the exhibition, visit www.citycentresouth.co.uk to see details of the updated proposals, as well as an online form to add comments for the project team. Coventry City Council has announced who will be taking up the £200,000 a year role as the new Chief Executive. Julie Nugent, who previously worked at the West Midlands Combined Authority, had her appointment approved unanimously at the last full council meeting. Leader Councillor George Duggan said, I personally look forward to working with Julie. I have done so as the Cabinet Member at the Combined Authority over a couple of years. Opposition leader, Councillor Ridley, also welcomed Ms Nugent and said that he felt the Conservative group would play a full part in the process. But Green Councillor Stephen Gray abstained as he couldn't go to the backbench panel to help decide on the role due to a long-standing commitment. 
He said, I've not had any information about the candidate, so while this is no comment about Julie and her suitability for the job, I'm just not in a position to judge that. The date when Ms. Nugent will replace Joint Acting Chief Executives Kirsten Nelson and Barry Hasty has yet to be announced. Her LinkedIn profile states she has 20 years leadership experience across education, employment and skills with senior roles held in government and the college sector. She was described as having particular expertise in financing further education when joining the WMCA in autumn 2017. Ms Nugent joined the council after a tumultuous time for Coventry's only mainstream further education college. Coventry College was banned from providing new apprenticeships in January after a critical Ofsted report. More than 2,000 homes in Coventry will be made warmer, more energy efficient and at less risk of mould in a huge £23.8 million project. Over the next two and a half years, Citizen and Coventry City Council will oversee works on hundreds of homes across the city. The work will predominantly improve the fabric and ventilation of properties by installing cavity or external wall insulation, increased loft insulation and improving ventilation to reduce the potential for mould growth. Cash to pay for the work, totalling £23.8 was secured by a joint bid from the Housing Association and the City Council to the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero. It was the Council's second joint bid after the first wave of social housing decarbonisation funding saw 95 homes across the city improved last year. Mads Nelson, Chief Operating Officer at Citizen, said, It's fantastic news we've been successful with Coventry City Council on our bid to the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund. It is a government requirement that all rented properties must achieve a minimum EPC band C by 2030, and this will help us achieve that. Including the grant from the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund, we are investing nearly £74 to bring more than 4,000 homes up to EPCC ahead of the government's target of 2030. Councillor David Welsh, Cabinet Member for Housing and Communities at the City Council added, helping more people to access a good standard of affordable housing is absolutely vital. This funding will mean families should be able to see reductions in their energy bills. As a council, we are looking at ways to raise standards from the private rented sector through to temporary accommodation and we should be doing all we can to protect tenants, especially those on a low income. Following last week's report, Coventry councillors across the political divide have called for the government to launch a public inquiry into the collapse of the City of Culture Trust. A motion for the move brought by the Opposition Conservatives Group last week was passed at the Council meeting. Group leader Councillor Gary Ridley said the implications of the Trust's demise go beyond Coventry and could potentially damage the city's reputation. This affects our city in ways we can't understand yet in terms of the reputational damage that this has potentially done to us, he says. 
we cannot disguise the fact that something has gone wrong here and we need to know about it, he added. This loss of public money, this loss of confidence, cannot be allowed to follow this programme through to the next year. But Cabinet Member Councillor David Welsh revealed that he and Leader Councillor George Duggins had already asked the Secretary of State for a public inquiry into the Trust's collapse. In a letter to Lucy Fraser MP, sent hours before the meeting, the pair expressed their concern over events that led to the charity going into administration. They said people's questions hadn't been answered by the Trust, and an inquiry is needed so that any mistakes aren't repeated by other cities in future. A wide range of public funding has been used by the Trust, so it is important there is transparency and people have the answers they need, they wrote. Councillor Welsh also successfully amended the Conservative motion to add words stressing the City of Culture's year positive impact on the city. He said he'd be meeting with cultural leaders across the city in the coming weeks to see how to continue the City of Culture legacy programme. But after the meeting, Councillor Ridley said he wasn't informed of the letter and called it a missed opportunity to get across party signatories. New jobs are set to be created after plans to create a major new 24-unit industrial park in Coventry were approved. The Wigley Group has received full planning permission from Coventry City Council to transform a brownfield site on Endermere Road with a new multi-let industrial park. The move will bring new employment and business opportunities to the area. The scheme, which will be called Albion Enterprise Park, will provide 24 units ranging in size from 1,000 to 3,000 square feet to help meet growing demand in the region. It follows planning permission at the start of the year for a similar industrial scheme lodged by the Wigley Group on Stonebridge Trading Estate in Rowley Drive. Combined, the two new schemes will help to provide 33 units in total, £8.5 million worth of investment, and bring business and employment opportunities to Coventry. Working at the new Albion Enterprise Park will begin this year, ready for tenancy next year. Mike Vining, Land and Development Director at the Wigley Group, which is based in Southam, said... This is fantastic news for the region. This scheme responds to the acute demand for industrial space in a well-connected location such as this, and so it is no surprise that we have already received interest in these units. We are now exploring finance and funding options in the coming months, ahead of commencing work later in the year. The scheme on Endermere Road will provide sustainable and modern industrial units with office and storage space catering for small businesses, along with 72 car parking spaces. The 1.88-acre Brownfield site at the back of the Albion Industrial Estate is currently vacant, following the demolition of dilapidated pre-war industrial units. A large cannabis farm worth hundreds of thousands of pounds was found on a quiet street in Coventry. Officers made the discovery on Cherry Tree Drive. South Coventry Police raided a property on the residential street shortly after 10am last Saturday. A total of 200 cannabis plants were found at the address in Canley. 
the police were alerted to the cannabis farm by members of the community who had raised concerns. It has been estimated that the hall was worth approximately £250,000. Officers have recently executed a number of warrants throughout the city as they cracked down on organised drug gangs operated in Coventry. Inspector Alex Healy from Coventry Police previously said the cultivation of cannabis and illegal use of properties not only fuels the drugs market but also further crime which harms our communities. The setups, uh, the, the setups to bypass electricity are dangerous and have led to fires at the properties. Vulnerable people can also be exploited and will continue to target those suspected of running and organising these drug factories. Residents have been urged to report suspected cannabis factories and have been told to look out for the following signs. Strong odours, covered up windows, excessive security measures, lots of condensation, bright lights day and night, lots of visitors at unsociable hours, buzz ventilation and any unusual adaptation to the building. A £20,000 reward is being offered for information which will finally help solve a double murder investigation that has been hanging over Coventry. It has been five years since Johnny Robbins was last seen and police have long believed he was tortured before being murdered. Johnny's death is linked to the murder of Daniel Shaw who was found dead in Copland Place Tile Hill with a gunshot wound to his chest. West Midlands police say there has been a wall of silence ever since and this has meant the killers remain at large. They say they finally want to bring justice to the two heartbroken families and hope the reward, which is the second after £10,000 was offered back in 2018, will lead to them finally solving the murders. Detective Superintendent Chris Mallett, who leading the investigation, added... Five years on, it's devastating for the families that the people who carried out these sickening murders have still not been brought to justice. These murders happened on the streets of Coventry, streets that are meant to be safe for families. Crime Stoppers has stumped up the reward, and Alan Edwards, Crime Stoppers West Midlands Regional Manager, added, While we understand many people are frightened to talk, this information could be crucial. It could help Johnny's and Danny's grieving families, including Johnny's three young children, to be able to put them to rest properly. Our charity exists to give people a vital anonymous option if they prefer not to speak to the police or give any personal details. You can tell us what you know and we'll pass it on for you. Nobody will know you contacted us and you will be doing the right thing for the families. Police say they also still need to hear from anyone with information about the whereabouts of Ryan Hobday, aged 28 at the time of the murders, from Coventry, who is wanted in connection with the murders. We are still seeking his whereabouts. However, we believe he may also have been murdered, West Midlands Police said. Coventry Cathedral has launched an appeal for more volunteers to help keep the Blitz Museum open. 
After a successful opening over the February half-term, museum bosses want to reopen it every Saturday and Sunday and weekdays during the school holidays from spring until autumn. Coventry Cathedral is self-funded and relies on donations to remain open, meaning it needs the help of volunteers in its day-to-day running as well as Blitz Brigade members at the museum. Volunteers can help out for as much time as they are able to, from one day per month. The museum is located within the, Coventry, in, within the cathedral ruins and contains 1940s memorabilia and artefacts. Visitors can learn about the Coventry Blitz on November the 14th, 1940, in the period schoolroom, before travelling through a typical house of the time and learning more about life in this era. A Coventry politician has called for MPs to be banned from second jobs after former cabinet members were caught in a sting operation by campaign group named Led by Donkeys. Matt Hancock and Kwasi Kwarteng told a fake overseas company looking for MP advisers that their daily rate for consultancy would be £10,000. MPs are seeking, permitted to seek employment outside of Parliament and there is no accusation of wrongdoing. A trailer for the Led by Donkeys investigation states that it's not against any rules for MPs to have second or even third jobs and there are no restrictions on how much they can earn. Zara Sultana, MP for Coventry South, tweeted the trailer adding... I've said it before and I'll say it again. Second jobs should be banned. The presenter of the trailer states that some people believe MPs having second jobs brings important experience into the House of Commons. But he adds, But a clear majority of the public think it's wrong for serving MPs also to work for private companies. And while successive governments have promised action on MPs outside interests, little appears to have changed. It's not the first time Ms Sultana has broached the subject of MPs' second jobs. In 2020, she took aim at Sajid Javid after he became a paid advisor to JP Morgan. And in a speech in Parliament in November 21, she said... MPs are already in the top 5% of earners, but for some this is still not enough. Led by Donkeys said they approached 16 MPs, of which 5 are said to have progressed to an online interview stage, including Mr Hancock, Mr Quatang, chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, former education secretary, Sir Gavin Williamson and former Minister Stephen Hammond. Kiev's mayor and the former World Heavyweight Boxing Champion Vitaly Kitschu has written a letter praising the West Midlands for its generosity in welcoming Ukrainian refugees. The letter was sent to West Midlands Mayor Andy Street on the anniversary of the Homes for Ukraine scheme and less than a month after the first anniversary of Russia's illegal invasion. As of February 2023, 1,663 Ukrainian refugees had found a host family in the West Midlands under the Homes for Ukraine scheme, including 280 in Coventry and 239 in Solihull. 
Across the UK, more than 110,000 have arrived. The vast majority of those are women and children. The Homes for Ukraine scheme was set up in March 2022 and allows Ukrainians to live, work, study in the UK and access public funds. In his letter, the mayor wrote, Allow me on behalf of Kiev and the Ukrainian nation to express our highest consideration to you and all the officials and residents of the West Midlands for your consistent support of Ukraine. It is the support of our friends for the citizens in need, both who took refuge in your towns and cities of the West Midlands and those who are weathering all the challenges at their homes in Kiev that help to see who our true friends are, and our friendship is only growing stronger due to your actions. As only by defending our common democratic values to the very end can we succeed in calling ourselves free. Mr Street said, from aid to providing sanctuary, the UK has helped to lead the way when it comes to international support for Ukraine. Roadworks can be a nightmare for drivers and pedestrians. Whether you're travelling in the city or out of town, roadworks can take up time and can make a hazard for pedestrians, especially those with visual impairment. It can be frustrating for commuters travelling to and from work or parents on the school run in the morning, and there are a lot of roadworks taking place in Coventry at the moment. Roadworks which may affect pedestrians are... Biggin Hall Crescent until April the 4th, Outer March Road until April the 4th, Charter Avenue until June the 2nd, Brandon Road until June the 30th, Brinklow Road until June the 30th, Moat Street Car Park until June the 16th, Upper Spon Street until June the 30th, Croft Road until August the 16th, Ringway Rudge until June the 30th, Orsley Old Road until October the 7th, Butts Road until October the 7th, Spon End until Saturday, October the 7th. Hometown Heroes The Enemy will be closing the first night of this year's Godiva Festival as one of the three headliners. Organisers of the much-loved event have promised they will be keeping it Coventry this year, and the next stage will host homegrown talent including Caitlin McCarthy. The session, Ruth Kelly, The Boy Who Invented Everything, Isda Rabbit, Abby Melville, Dean MacDonald, Pandora, and Jack Blackman. However, there are lots of acts from across the country also taken to the stage, including Rudimental and Ella Iyer. Other acts will be performing at the huge city festival are local band The Enemy, as well as Spice Girl Mel C, who will be headlining on Sunday, June the 2nd. I beg your pardon, headlining on Sunday, July the 2nd. There are still many other acts to be announced for the festival, which place, takes place between June the 30th and July the 2nd. Other acts appearing over the three-day festival include Cruel Hearts Club, The Selector, Celine Sharma, The Kays, and many more. On the main stage, to close the festival on Sunday, will be Mel C, Odyssey, Trevor Nelson, 
Diversity and Kolf Kozaks, while on the next stage the Institute will be performing. It's been a mixed and sometimes snowy start to the year, but forecasters have shared the good news that warmer weather is on the way, just in time for Easter. Temperatures in March have been struggling to get into double figures, but that could all be about to change. Jim Dale, Senior Meteorological Consultant with the British Weather Services, said there will be an improvement in the weather soon. We could even be seeing temperatures as high as 20 degrees Celsius by Easter Monday. He said February was dry and predominantly mild. It was exceptionally dry in the southeast, so we did need some rainfall. We're starting to come out of it just in time for Easter, and we're likely to see some high pressure just before Good Friday. It's not a given, but there are good signs that this kind of change will arrive just in time for Easter. The longer-term forecast up to Good Friday next week, the 7th of April, predicts outbreaks of rain and strong winds. A Met Office spokesman said, Into early April, more settled conditions and drier interludes become increasingly likely. Temperatures will be generally above average. From Saturday, April the 8th to April the 22nd, Conditions are expected to improve, according to the long-range forecast. The spokesman added, A general trend to less unsettled conditions is likely into April. Still some wet weather at times, tending towards the south. However, most areas are likely to see some spells of dry weather, but potentially with frost and some fog overnight. Outlook News. So that completes uh, this week's local news from Elaine and myself. I've got a couple of announcements. One, you know what it's going to be, as always. It's a sunrise and sunset. It's 10 to 7, the sun appears, and it disappears at 25, uh, 25 to 8 in the evening. It's getting better. The other one is something you haven't heard before. It's from Robert Franklin, who's phoned in with some information about exercise classes. These exercise classes are done via the phone, surprisingly, by a lady called Hannah Lane, and are free of charge. There are various classes to choose from, yoga, pilates, chair exercise, etc. If any one of you is interested in these, they can phone Hannah Lane on 07825 174 938 or email her on hannah.lane at so that's the answer for this week, and that leads me on very neatly to say hello, Hugh. Hello, Here Michael. He is. <laughs> Hi. Hello, everybody. Well, uh, first I have some sad news to report. Um, Katie Dickey, who was a very long-standing member of the Monday Club until a few years ago, and, of course, our own Joe's uh, dear mum, uh, died last Monday. She'd reached the grand old age of 96. So she had been struggling for a while, but I will remember her very fondly. She loved the Monday Club and was always willing to help out at events as well, like the Winter Warmer. And she was a proper stalwart in the uh, early days of the charity. I know that um, that Rosie and Tricia really appreciated having her around. So as we send her on with love, we're also sending love to Jo and all her family at this time. Now... uh, 
It's Wednesday today. It is. And yesterday, Tuesday, uh, in the afternoon, evening rather, uh, we uh, went to the Criterion Theatre. Uh, it wasn't just me, uh, but we had pretty much the entire creative writing group because uh, the creative writing group's uh, work was being uh, showcased as part of the Springboard Festival at the um, at the theatre. And I was privileged enough to be on stage uh, with uh, a number of people. Anybody who's been to see, um, to see uh, any of the events about the creative writing, uh, you know, will have uh, will have met the actors, but we had a special, extra special guest star in Derek Headley, who himself is a member of the Creative Writing Group, uh-huh. and who was up there and absolutely wowed everybody with his great poem. Um, and uh, he, he, you know, and he was up there and you know recited it just like that, and you know, everybody Excellent. was you know, it was a good great. night was had by all. It was a great night, yep. and you know, it's a packed house as well. Good. So um, that was absolutely fantastic, and um, obviously, everybody knows that I'm a you know member in good standing of that theatre, as indeed are many of the volunteers who uh, who who volunteer up here. You know, people like Carl and Francis, and um, oh gosh, who else? Um, Sally, uh, various other people, and. Um, uh, uh, you know, and you know, we've all been getting comments just saying, you know, what a fantastic evening that was, and some great writing. So um, we're hoping, you know, that that won't be the last of that, you know, and we will uh, carry on, uh, maybe, you know, once a year, a regular we'll, event. We'll have a regular yeah. event Good. down, you know, showcasing showcasing our stuff. Good. Now, for months, perhaps. I have been teasing you, yes. teasing you about... Not about Christmas cards. Not about <laughs> Christmas cards, but about the, um, uh, a project that we have applied for some money for from the council. And it has been a long, old road, I can tell you. Uh, plenty of twists and turns in it as well. But I'm very, very pleased to announce... Could there be some good news? ...that we've secured a significant grant from the uh, City Council and from uh, it's called the uh, Coventry and Warwickshire Integrated Care Board now for those of you uh, who remember clinical commissioning groups that's what they are now so they're the go- part of government is it yeah well yeah, sort, sort of, of yes yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of like a tier of the health yeah. service anyway yeah, so right. and this is called the preventative support grant uh, and basically they're giving us uh, funding to do more of what we do uh, but m- more out there as well. So we will be um, having uh, a couple of new members of staff, one of whom actually might be starting on Monday, but, you know, that's part of the issues why it's taken such a while to, to get to this point. Um, one of the members of staff will be doing outreach. So what we will do is we, w- we are going to uh, take the message out about uh, raising awareness of sight loss and about the support that's available for it not least from us um, uh, out to community groups all over the city and we're going to you know we're going to see you know maybe one or two of these community groups hopefully a week uh, and uh, you know and just tell them and from because there's so many there are thousands of people literally thousands of people in Coventry who've got sight problems oh um, we always used to claim there were well over 2,000 so yeah well actually there's no no there's somewhat more there's there's about 2,000 people who are registered oh that's right yeah Yeah. but you know there's at least that number again who who could be registered and who aren't you know and there's a number of people you know thousands of people after that who are you know who are nearly able to be registered yeah so uh so we want to go and find, you know, as many of those people who feel they need extra support as possible uh, and uh, tell them, you know, what help they can get and, you know, that we can help provide it for them. Um, so 
out of that, we hope as well that we will get many more people coming into the centre and we'll be expanding the range of activities and the number of activities that we have, uh, providing, of course, we can get the volunteers. So um, we, the other role that, we're, uh, that this funding will help pay for uh, is somebody we're calling a service development officer uh, and they will uh, help uh, support the groups but also be key in uh, going out and finding uh, volunteers uh, to come and support us and we'll be doing a big campaign on that so we'll be and we'll be asking around everywhere uh, for more volunteers because we're going to need them yep. um, is this is this a, a, a time limited uh, well um, hopefully campaign? Well, it's for, for, t- for two years oh, uh, good. essentially yep. if, can mean, you go back and say please beg you more yeah, yeah. Well, then, yeah, then uh, I mean, this thing has been going on for this grant has been going on for a while, so we might hope that you know, if we do well enough, and we think that we it, will, it, it's uh, then it'll you know, it'll continue Good. perhaps in a different, a slightly different form, but yep. you know, essentially the same thing um, afterwards. Good. So uh, we're very excited by it. Now, another part of that that project is going to be something called help desk. Now, at the moment, we are. You know, we're, you know, anybody who comes here, you know, if you need a hearing aid battery changed or, uh, or you know, you want help in filling in a form or um, getting a watch or getting eye shields or anything like that, you know, we're, you know, we are, you know, we're there for you. That's yep. what we do. But we're going to formalise that a little bit more. Uh, it'll still be the same friendly, helpful service, but there'll be a few more of us doing it. Sure. Uh, and we're going to formalise it a bit more and just record a few more things about it so that we can demonstrate to uh, to the council and to the clinic and uh, to the uh, to the uh, integrated care board that you know just just how much work goes on here and mm-hmm. how much support um, that we give you know uh, to to people as well. So it's a very exciting time Absolutely. for us. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, so there will be we'll be using more of next door, I guess, won't you? For space. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We'll be, yes. We'll be moving using the the lounge a bit more, and uh, you know, so you know, uh, and you know, there may well be a lot more people here, and I hope actually many more listeners to the talking newspaper. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because this is a crucial way of. Uh, oh, communicating absolutely with you. right yeah so um so that's so that's that big piece of news that Excellent. i've been well itching done. itching to tell you about i know I've got, we've gathered you've been running around like a what what fly yes, for I a have. long time and now I it's have. nice to know that it's come to a good, good yes good fruition. now yeah i mean because i haven't been around that much you know people haven't seen me quite so much because i've been stuck to my desk and doing yep. doing stuff uh, i'm afraid that's probably going to continue for a little while because there's still a lot of stuff to do um so thank you for your patience everyone and i will you know i'll try and grace you with my presence uh, <laughs> as much as I possibly can but uh, but uh, but you know there's a lot lot to do Good. but it's a I think it's a very exciting time you know and here we are uh, this is the uh, this weekend is the 13th anniversary of Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind is it as of excellent. the 1st of April we'll be 13 years old excellent lucky for some yes and we think it is you yeah. know so yeah. uh, you know so we over those course of the 13 years, and I've been involved for, you know, about 12 of them. Well, you, you joined with us originally, didn't you? That's right. Yes, I did, yes. The newspaper, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, over the time, over that time, you know, the centre has, you know, Flourished. developed and grown, and, you know, we, you know, we're a completely different beast from how we were. Uh, and all due to the efforts of, well, all due, but, but certainly due to the faith of, of both Trish and, and, uh, and Rosie, Rosie absolutely and they, could, they could make make something of it now yes, and absolutely. had they just done that absolutely wonderfully I know and you know all credit to them for you know having that vision you know but also you know all credit to you know the volunteers and you know and everybody who has helped us you know get, get to this get yep. to this point we, yep. you know we're 
really delighted about how things are going at the moment Good. and um, this is a, a real stamp of approval yes. as well as an opportunity to you know develop our services even more and mm. you know we want to help more people and we and so we we're going to go out and find them excellent excellent well done that's, that's it. it. That's it. That's it. So not, nothing about other events going. Oh, this Saturday. Oh, this Saturday. Yeah. Yes, of course we do have the uh, the uh, the charity shop going large. Yeah. The weather may not be set fair, unfortunately. It doesn't look like it. But you know, we'll have a big tent up outside, and maybe the little tent as well. Uh, but if necessary, we'll put uh, we'll put uh, more stuff available inside. Okay. So um, yeah, definitely worth coming along there. Times. What time? Uh, it starts at ten, goes on till four. Uh, look, if it, if if everybody's you know, decided that it's too dark and wet and horrible uh, and they're, they're not coming out after three, then we'll close at three. But, yeah. you know... We'll if they're really crowding in at four, you'll stay open a bit longer. Yeah, well, perhaps <laughs> so, yes. But it's... Uh, it, it, uh, June has been working like mad to, you know, to get get uh, the shop ready for, for the event. And there's some great stuff there. I mean, you know, we had, you know, people drop in and, uh, you know, just as... June was whisking something away, you know, to the sale rails, and it stop. I'm not yeah. that. <laughs> you know, so we had to sell that before the sale day. So right. there we are. Good. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks you, and we will see, bear in mind we're not here next week. We are having our uh, Easter break. So break. Our Easter, right. uh, okay. Only oh, break. Well, that reminds me actually. Gosh, <laughs> it's good. It's good I've got Nigel here. He's my random access memory. Um, uh, the Easter break. Yes. Uh, the charity is not open on bank holidays, which means that on Friday the seventh. Uh, seventh. Is it seventh? Yes, April. We will be closed, and we will also be closed therefore on the tenth. Mon- on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, because uh, well, I've got to go up to Scotland and clear my mum's house. Yes, so Friday and Monday closed. Friday and Monday closed. So so that's no Braille, no bowls, no yoga, no Monday club, no IT on the Monday and no creative writing. So there we are. Okay. And no no, no, uh, newspaper from us next week either. Good. Okay. Thanks, you. Thank you. And now it's time for Sports Report, but a little different this week as Sarah's away on holiday. It's Keith with an article on the 100 years of Lady Skiers. When Michaela Schifrin, the world's top female skier, hurtles down a giant slalom or downhill slope, she crosses the finish line just a few seconds slower than the world's top male skiers. In the adrenaline-fueled world of snow sport, men and women are almost on level pegging. It wasn't always this way. A century ago, when skiing was still a very novel pursuit, women had to struggle just to be allowed on the same slopes as the men. And among the earliest pioneers were three British women who met in the Swiss mountain village of Murren. Here in the shadow of the Eiger Mountain, in an upstairs room at the very grand Palace Hotel, they established the Ladies' Ski Club. They wanted to assemble a hardy band of female adventurers who could raise the profile of women by challenging male domination in the rugged world of ski racing. What came out of their meeting was an organisation of bold, independent women whose achievements in public life were as as remarkable as those on the piste. One flamboyant society girl went on to captain the British Olympic skiing team, fly RAF Spitfires and grab headlines with her adventures. 
Another pioneer had already founded the Women's Royal Navy Service, the Wrens, and organised medical aid for thousands of wounded First World War soldiers. But she also knew how to outrun an aggressive bear while on the ski slope. There was also an eccentric suffragette who amused herself by playing hockey in the ballrooms of her mansion and went on to champion the Women's Institute. That inaugural gathering of the Ladies' Ski Club was led by Lady Mabel Lunn, wife of skiing pioneer Sir Arnold Lunn. With her fellow expats Violet Evans and Dora Fox, she compiled a list of women who could catch up with the men and overtake their foreign rivals. As the club celebrates its centenary, current members include former British Olympian and BBC Ski Sunday host Chemi Alcott and current Team GB ace Kirsty Muir. Honorary members include Sophie, Countess of Wessex, an expert skier who holidays regularly in the Swiss Alps with her husband Prince Edward and their children Louise and James. A century after that inaugural club meeting on January the 22nd, 1923, modern members honoured their founders with a slalom race, wearing 1920s outfits and using equipment from the original era. Thirty or so skiers donned the ankle-length skirts and plus fours favoured by their forebears and swapped lightweight ski jackets and protective helmets for woolen jumpers, coats and caps. They were cheered as they zigzagged around the markers using wooden skis and poles so basic they'd leave an Olympian wobbling like a novice. Alcott who raced in four Olympics and seven world championships, ended up flat on her back when she completed the run in baggy trousers, jacket and beret for her show. The 40-year-old said afterwards, That was incredibly challenging. I had no control at all. I have so much respect for the ladies who started the sport that I love so much. These were brave pioneering women who were prepared to hike uphill for hours carrying their skis before skiing down, really unprepared and on pretty dangerous pistes. Gail Parsons, the club's vice president, explained how this was an era long before the invention of ski lifts and that those first female skiers took up to five hours to reach the top of the piste through rough, snowbound conditions before racing down. She says, there must have been some horrific injuries, but we Brits are a hardy breed. The Ladies' Ski Club was originally formed by wealthy, well-connected expats who transferred Muren, a secluded hamlet more than 5,000 feet up the mountain, into a fashionable enclave in the early 20th century. Sir Arnold Lund's father, Sir Henry Lund, discovered and developed Murren's tourist potential through his embryonic Lund poly travel business. It became a winter sports mecca for everybody who was anybody, with regular visitors including Sherlock Holmes creator Arthur Conan Doyle and the King and Queen of Belgium. Sir Arnold was dubbed the patron saint of skiing, 
and in a lifetime devoted to the sport, is arguably best known for holding the first slalom race in Murren in 1922. He encouraged his wife Mabel, a gifted skier in her own right, to launch the ladies' club, because women were barred from joining his other venture, the Alpine Ski Club. Gail added, Women were not encouraged to join men's clubs. Sport in general was male-dominated, and for women to be involved in those clubs perhaps didn't sit very well. But they were allowed to ski with men, and they did that quite regularly, and not shabbily by any means. They really held their own. Mabel Lund became the club's vice president, while the first presidency was offered to the formidable Dame Catherine Furse, already well known thanks to her work in public service. She spent the First World War leading the British Red Cross's voluntary aid detachment. She later launched the Women's Royal Naval Service. During the Second World War, she took charge of the land girls. Her skiing wasn't bad either. As a girl, she practiced with Conan Doyle when he visited the region. She took up serious ski racing after settling in Murren in her late 40s, and wrote a popular ski guide which included tips on how to deal with the bears that still roamed certain mountain ranges. She told her readers they would be unlucky to encounter one of the carnivores, adding, It is said that a bear cannot traverse, traverse down a slope, so that the skier could easily get away. Another president was Lady Gertrude Denman, an early campaigner for the suffragettes and first president of the National Association of Women's Institutes. Her husband, Lord Thomas Denman, had been Governor-General of Australia, where she had the honour of naming Canberra the country's capital in 1913. She was well known for her eccentricity and enjoyed playing hockey in the ballroom of their Australian mansion. Audrey Sale Barker, a tall, slim society girl, who was said to ski like a gull on the breeze, added fun and glamour to the band, along with her friend Doreen Elliott. The pair once turned up to ski for Britain at an international event in Poland to find the organisers, surprised that they were not men, were reluctant to let them compete. After finishing 13th and 14th, they received a standing ovation from the male competitors in the town's cafe. Sail Barker led the British ladies' ski team in the 1936 Winter Olympics and became a highly rated instructor afterwards. She's perhaps best known for a 1933 adventure in which, indulging her other passion, aviation, she crashed a de Havilland gypsy moth near the Kenyan capital Nairobi as she flew from Cape Town to London. With her co-pilot injured and unable to move, she decided to write an SOS message in lipstick on a piece of paper, handing it to a Maasai tribesman. The Daily Express was the first newspaper to print the text of her note, which read, Please come and fetch us. We have had an air crash and are hurt. During the Second World War, Sail Barker joined the Air Transport Auxiliary, or Spitfire Girls as they were known, flying warplanes from the factories to RAF bases, ready for raids on Nazi Germany. 
1947, she married the Chief Intelligence Officer for Fighter Command. The lipstick SOS note was kept framed above her Dorset cottage door. Although the ski club struggled for new members as the 1930s depression flattened the tourist trade, it recovered with the consumer boom of the 1970s. Today they have about 300 members and concentrate on sponsoring British snow sport athletes and taking schoolgirl teams to a contest in the French resort of Flame every year. Gail says, They were very encouraging then, and we still are. We're not exclusive with those who want to race. We say, come and give it a go. Club president Ingrid Christofferson adds, Our Ladies Ski Club embodies the ideals of the pioneering intrepid forebears, initiation and stubborn defenders of freedom, breaking the glass ceiling long before any of that was fashionable. We are celebrating not just a hundred years of ladies skiing, having fun and looking beautiful. We are documenting a social revolution. With thanks to Keith there, and of course Sarah will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we go over now over to Dave with your post bag. This is post bag. Join in the discussion. Welcome to your spot on Outlook, and it's an ideal post bag this week where you do all the talking, really. Or, or uh, typing you provide the information and entertainment and I say very little we begin with a report by Julia entitled Deep and Crisp and Even I bet you think this is all about Gary Lineker and Walker's Crisps well it isn't and I don't want to get banned by the BBC you'll have to wait to see how I get Walker's Crisps into this report at the Monday Club we had pancakes. I ate them with my fingers because I'm not civilised. They were lovely. I didn't save any for my friend John because he's too fat. Visibly Sound sang some songs that were so old that some had beards. They were very good though. Then I showed everybody my baby blankets. I haven't had the baby yet but the blanket is blue. But, and this is the bit you've all been waiting for, good old Uncle Hugh came in to show us a blanket that my friend Elizabeth had made. Guess what it was made from? Walker's crisp packets, that's what. He calls it a survival blanket. If he got peckish, you could crack open a packet of cheese and onion. Isn't that a good idea? The only trouble was... Every time you open it, Gary Lineker popped out and said, They're very fattening, you know. Thank you, Julia. Your blanket you quotient was brilliant. And so was Elizabeth's, made up of crisp packets that she made after she'd heard that they could be used as survival blankets. She wonders if you know of any organisation she could send it to and they could find it useful. And tell us about a club that you belong to. What do they get up to? Julia talking about Chris being fattening. Well, the same could be said for chips. Graham makes these comments about chips 
being put in bins, but maybe he's referring to electronic chips from the council. Regarding the uh, item in the Outlook News about the possibility of chips in our waste bin to monitor what we're we're putting in them, I think it's a a cheek. I'm on uh, assisted collection, and I have a heck of a problem with my recycling. I don't have a problem with my domestic waste, and not even my gardening. I don't send gardening waste very often, but they still come and check the bin. But I'm constantly being missed out with my recycling waste. And what it means is that I tend to put more recycling in my domestic waste bin. So I have no other option. So it would be a cheek to put a a chip in to monitor what we're putting in there when it's their fault. They want to get their own job right, do their own job properly for to start um, uh, pointing fingers at uh, the residents. Thank you, Graham. Referring to potato chips, I find that chip shops tend to give me too many chips, so some of them end up in the bin. Do you have any problems with bin collections, by the way? We'll be thinking about coronation chicken soon. Edwina, our royal correspondent, who correctly predicted that Prince Edward will be the new Duke of Edinburgh, is intrigued about Prince William dressed in red. One of the things that came up in the paper, much to my surprise, was that the Prince of Wales has been going out and around in a red suit, a red trouser suit. So some of you men could perhaps change your shirt from white to a vivid colour to lift your spirit. It's just a thought. Bye. Well, closer to home, I can assure you that Julia and your friend John, the computer tutor, dresses very colourfully indeed with a skull and crossbones braces. Graham is back again with that topic that really got you going. Local radio. Well, I don't have favourite radio stations. I have a lot of favourite radio programmes on various different channels, and if I talked about them in detail, I'd be here a few hours. <laughs> um, I will concentrate on local radio. It seems to be uh, a topic of concern at the moment. I didn't think that the uh, journalist strike was really supported in this area. I didn't hear any sign of it on the stations I listened to, apart from BBC, Hereford and Worcestershire, which actually ceased local broadcasting from 11 o'clock on the Wednesday morning and the 11, to 11 o'clock on the Thursday morning. And they're the only station who actually gave uh, detailed information if you wanted to lodge a complaint about the BBC proposals. I can't remember the email address, but the phone number, if you want to leave a message, is 03700 100 222. 03700 100 222. Now, although I uh, don't approve of the regionalisation of BBC local radio, ironically, it's the regional programmes on local radio which I prefer most of all. Uh, I like to listen to Paul Miller, Monday to Thursday, 10 o'clock onwards, on Southern Counties radio stations, which I listen to on BBC Oxford. 
is a brilliant presenter. He can relate to the listener, plenty of listener interaction. He has a fascinating competition uh, to 20 to 11 called The Bag. Um, on a Friday, I might listen to Justin Dealing on Eastern Counties Radio, which I listen to through BBC Northampton. Again, there's plenty of listener interaction, but he's a bit of a shock jock. Uh, very off the wall, and if you ring into the station, he might ask you to do something embarrassing. So uh, I wouldn't do it, but uh, it is quite good to listen to. On Sunday, again, on some of the Southern Counties stations, which I listen to on BBC Oxford, Harmony Nights, presented by Bill Reynolds. It is a genuine request program. It's not just a case that it's on their playlist. Anything you request will play, not necessarily the week you request it because they need to source it. But they'll play it, even classical music, as long as it's not too long. But uh, Bill is in his 90s now, so even if uh, these changes don't go ahead, he will retire. And I suspect that they will replace Harmony Nights with something directed at younger people. I don't listen to uh, the regional programs in our own area very often. I don't mind um, uh, um, Caroline Martin, Monday to Thursday, uh, 10 to 1. Um, she's quite good, but unfortunately I'm afraid she's second best to uh, Paul Miller. But I will listen to her if Paul Miller's on holiday or something like that. The weekend presenter on the Midlands, uh, Friday and Saturday, who I can't even remember what her name is. She's totally insignificant as far as I'm concerned. I don't rate the programme, even though her mother is supposed to be a famous singer. But all these programmes I come across quite by chance, by experiment, by just tuning around on old-fashioned radio, or um, I, I can monitor uh, internet stations on my mobile phone. The problem with... Um, smart speakers is that um, you've got to know the station you, you want to call up before you can um, uh, you know get it up you know there's no there's no element of surprise with them the only thing which might tempt me to a smart speaker is if I lose one of the stations I listen to for example 4 Extra which I listen to quite a lot is going off DAB I'm not too sure whether it'll be going off um, Freeview which I listen to it on but um if it does, then I'm completely, you know, kiboshed. And I might consider a, a smart speaker, but it's not very high on my shopping list. I do regard them as a little Big Brotherish. How do we know they're not reporting back to Big Brother? No, I'm not, uh, I'm not won over with the idea of a smart speaker. Thank you, Graham. The station I sometimes listen to on the Radio 4 when I wake up very early is Ramblings with Claire Baldwin. I am pleased to announce that you can listen to Ramblings on BBC Sounds. Tell us about your favourite radio station. Other subjects you can talk about uh, this week or next week is bin collections, the King's Coronation and Talking Buses and if they talk to you consistently etc. Well, thank you for your messages this week and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk Join in the discussion on Postbag.
And thanks again, as always, to Dave for bringing us your postbag. Now, the devastation of Coventry in the Blitz necessitated extensive rebuilding of the city centre. Uh, and the heart of this, of course, is the new precinct, which is the subject of Coventry's iconic buildings this week. As the precinct and Broadgate is made up of large blocks, not individual buildings, the author has condensed them into one. The buildings that make up the upper and lower precincts are significant as they make up the first pedestrian precinct in Europe. They were built in Britain stone in Festival of Britain style and designed by Donald Gibson. One could say they are neat, functional and not unattractive. The first building that one could say forms the corner of the upper precinct facing Broadgate was Broadgate House, left Broadgate entrance. It opened in 1953, was built on council land and cost £400,000. This still contains council offices and shops. The building also bridged Hartford Street, keeping an open flow and aspect from Broadgate. Sadly, this was filled in many years ago. The first piece of private building was Owen Owen, now Primark, built in 1953-54. It was designed by Helberg and Harris of Coventry and was the first post-war store built in the city, replacing an earlier Owens that was bombed in 1940. The most distinctive store in Broadgate it cost £940,000. Owens was followed by the Hotel Leofric, which opened in 1955 and was designed by Coventry architects Hatrells. It was the best hotel in the city centre and bookings had to be made a year in advance. It's now student accommodation. Building continued into the upper and lower two-tiered precincts, crossed by Smithford and Market Way. Gibson left in 1955 and building continued under Arthur Ling. Ling wanted to put more height into the plan and added blocks of flats. The lines of Gibson's work were originally flowed more and took perspectives into account. Much of these lines have been destroyed by modern additions such as the escalator and ramp in the upper precinct which totally, with cathedral lanes, destroyed Gibson's original concept. Other areas such as Market Way, which had a curved sweep of shops, were ruined by the buildings of a concrete tower. Two of the most iconic buildings are perhaps the Round Market with its rooftop car park and the Round Café in the lower precinct. Unusually, even in its time, the café, the, despite rumours, has never revolved. That was Margaret on the precinct, around which further developments are planned. 
I'm sure most of us can remember some of our favourite tipples from uh, the 1970s. Liebfrau Milch, Matthias Rosé, and of course, Baby Sham. Well, showerings, the make- makers of Baby Sham, are bringing it back so that a new generation can enjoy the sparkle that their grandfather invented. This was written by Vanessa Thorpe and is read by Sue. Baby Sham is as famous for its place in the history of advertising as for its sweet taste. It was cleverly targeted at women who wanted to enjoy a light drink with a touch of glamour, while the menfolk downed pints, and was a marketing phenomenon in the 1960s and 70s. Now, Baby Sham is back in the ownership of the family that invented it in the 1950s, with production just returned to its old headquarters, amid plans to give the sparkling Perry a new niece of life, among the sort of younger audience that has embraced cider in recent years. The little bottles still sell, and the brand has even gained a camp vintage mystique, but the rise of Alka-Pops and mixer drinks has seriously challenged its position in the beverage business. If you were to put a baby sham and a Prosecco, or even a champagne, side by side, there are an awful lot of people who would actually prefer the baby sham, because it hasn't got that dry rasp, said Matthew Showering, whose grandfather, the Somerset innkeeper and brewer, Francis Showering, first came up with the recipe. So it's important to stick with that. It's why it took off. We'll get closer to the original production method and recipe as some things got chiselled away for speed with mass production. And we're going towards the original look too. So we'll have quite a retro feel which, oddly, will make it more modern. The drink, concocted exactly 70 years ago, became the first alcoholic drink to be advertised on television. The enthusiastic slogan, I love a baby sham, entered the language. We want to keep that sense of celebration about it. Back then, nearly all drinks were sold in pubs, and baby sham were the masters of point of sale marketing. You'd have a glass there on show, and maybe a little deer on the bar, said Showering. The drink took the place of other ladylike options, such as a port and lemon, or a medicinal milk stout for the maturer woman. Based in Shepton Mallet, the Showering family have been in the drinks industry for 14 generations and have recently enjoyed renewed success with a reinvention of traditional West Country cider. Matthew and his brothers, Jonathan, Francis and Daniel set up Brothers Drinks in the 1990s and are now officially partners of Glastonbury Festival. Perry has been made in the west of England for centuries, but pears are notoriously difficult to harvest at the right point. Showering's version was commercially viable because it used a juice concentrate. His grandson says the family story is that Francis asked a neighbouring French au pair what pear was in French, and so dubbed his new drink Champagne de Poire. It started winning prizes at agricultural shows, and the little bottles picked up the name Baby Champ.
A marketing miracle took place when London advisors came up with the early slogans and designed the Baby Deer logo with its winsome blue bow. The family really hit the jackpot with Baby Sham and it meant that it became quite a big company that was able to go on to buy other brands like Britvic and Harvey's. But then it was merged with Allied Breweries in 1968. In 1977, the conglomerate sold 144 million bottles of Baby Sham a year. We bought back the old factory in 2016, but last year was a big year too, because we also bought back the original offices and the Baby Sham brand, said Sharing. The return to the original headquarters has also meant a reunion with a 15-foot statue of the Baby Sham Fawn, which was fixed to the roof but had been battered by decades of Somerset wind and rain. It had been really knocked by the weather and the paint was peeling. We got a car company to give it a fantastic spray job and we'll get it up on the roof again soon, he said. Baby Sham glasses Smaller versions of the wide, bold, classic champagne coupe are now collectible, with aficionados seeking out rarer editions. The showerings are planning a revamp of both glass and bottle, but nothing that does not adhere to the drink's vintage credentials. For showering, the drink shares the same elite pedigree as champagne. In Somerset, Landowners gave the farmers the cider and kept the perry for themselves. There you are, Baby Sham, the champagne perry loved by millions in the 70s and about to go back on the shelves of your favourite uh, wine merchant. Now, Elaine goes back even further to the 60s with an article from The People's Friend written by Douglas McPherson paying tribute to Cliff Richard's famous summer holiday. Released in early 1963... In the midst of one of Britain's coldest ever winters, Summer Holiday offered shivering teenagers a perfectly timed slice of escapism. It began with a reminder of the weather outside, bleak black-and-white shots of the wet British seaside. Then, as a London bus pulled out of the rain, the film morphed into glorious colour to reveal a beaming Cliff Richard at the wheel. He and a gang of fellow bus mechanics were going to borrow a double-decker, convert it into a rolling hotel and drive it across Europe. From there they set off on a sun-drenched road trip through glorious scenery, pausing only for sunny song and dance numbers. Audiences lapped up the feel-good tonic. Summer Holiday was the second biggest film of the year beaten only by James Bond in From Russia with Love. It also spawned one of the most popular sing-alongs of all time. Who to this day hasn't found themselves and their family singing We're All Going on a Summer Holiday as they head off on their break? Of all the films I have made, the one I would take with me on a desert island is Summer Holiday, its star said. Cliff had been a teen idol since 1958, when he burst onto the scene with Move It, which was later described by John Lennon as the first British rock and roll record. 
He made his big screen debut in 1959 with a minor part in the Anthony Quayle film Serious Charge. Cliff had a starring role in Espresso Bongo in the same year. But it was the young ones in 1961 that made him a box office sensation. Fans queued outside cinemas across the country to see Cliff make the transition from rock star to family favourite. Producer Kenneth Harper came up with the idea of setting Cliff's next film in Europe to capitalise on a growing interest in package holidays in sunny places. Because air travel was still out of the reach of most people, scriptwriter Ron Cass devised the more make-do-and-mend concept of penniless characters taking a road trip in a bus. The film also featured Cliff's band The Shadows, but because they weren't actors, they were restricted to cameo appearances, including playing a group of French cyclists that Cliff overtakes in the bus. Group members Bruce Welch and Brian Bennett did write the indelible theme song, however, in just 20 minutes flat. The song went to number one around the world and won an Ivan Novello Award. The Shadows also contributed the instrumental foot tapper to the soundtrack, and that topped the hit parade too. The supporting cast included Melvin Hayes, who went on to play Gloria in the 1970s sitcom It Ain't Half Hot Mum. Melvin, who had previously supported Cliff in The Young Ones, described the star as the ultimate professional. He was the last one there every day working hard on the film. We were in our twenties, said Cliff, and having the most wonderful time. The Cliff the film also made a star of Una Stubbs. Having auditioned as a dancer, Una wound up with one of the major roles as Sandy, one of three women who are rescued from a broken down car, and joined Cliff and his friends on their adventure. I remember Una coming in, and she looked fantastic, Cliff said at the actress's screen test. The two had a really nice romantic time making the film. I think we loved each other, he said, but added, we never took it any further than that. Cliff was destined to be the bachelor boy that he sang about in the other hit from the film. Bachelor Boy was released before the film but it was actually added to the movie at the last minute, when the producer realised the flick was several minutes too short. Cliff and Bruce Welch cooked up the song in an hour. With the location filming already complete, the musical sequence was shot at Elstree Studios, with the shadows standing in for the actors that played Cliff's buddies elsewhere in the film. Cliff's official leading lady was Laurie Peters, who stows away on the bus, initially pretending to be a boy called Bobby. The location scenes were shot in Greece, in temperatures averaging 44 degrees centigrade each day, even when the gang were supposed to be in Switzerland. The snow-capped mountains were added in post-production. Although Cliff did his singing at the wheel of a stationary bus, with a moving background projected behind him, he did occasionally have to drive it, including in the streets of Athens. I was scared to death, he admitted. 
having had just an hour's driving tuition. Melvin Hayes landed even riskier driving duties, steering the bus along a narrow mountain road. Try to look scared, the director told him. Scared? Melvin replied. I'm terrified. In many ways, summer holiday marked the end of a more innocent era. The 1960s came of age the following year with the Beatles' much grittier film, A Hard Day's Night. Cliff has weathered the changing musical trends and continued to top the charts with We Don't Talk Anymore, Mistletoe and Wine and The Millennium Prayer. Summer Holiday remains one of his theme tunes though. Its place as a national favourite was cemented when Cliff led an impromptu crowd sing-along of it during a rained-off Wimbledon in 1996. Three decades on, it was still a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day. And we all need a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day. Cliff Richard, of course, still going strong 60 years later. It's time to bring you another short story by Cynthia Townsend, read by Ali, and this one's called There's Something About China. If you were to go on holiday in the UK or abroad and go out for a meal, there's one guarantee you'll know that someone on the next table to you is from Stoke-on-Trent. As nine times out of ten, you will see them turn their side plate or cup over to look at it underneath. Why? Because people from Stoke-on-Trent are notorious for doing this, as they like to know whether the plates they're eating from were made in their hometown. I am guilty of this myself, to be honest. Whenever me and my husband go out for a meal, the first thing I do is to look where the plates are from. I get a little thrill if I see the words Wedgwood, Ainsley, Dudson, Port Merion, Spode or Royal Dalton. I'm proud of my roots. Going back to the late 1700s, my ancestors came over from Dresden in Germany to learn the tricks of the pottery trade and made their permanent home in Staffordshire. So you could say I have clay in my blood. Stoke-on-Trent has been shaped by the pottery industry for over 300 years and is affectionately known the world over as the potteries. From small-scale beginnings in the mid-17th century, the abundance of coal and clay meant that the pottery industry grew and became rooted in the area. The industry flourished through revolutionary ideas and the development of ceramic manufacturing techniques by master potters such as Wedgwood and Spode. The industry has remained in the area thanks to the skills of the local people, and today, Ceramics is a modern industry and Stoke-on-Trent is still famous for its quality ware, which is sold all over the world. With an unrivalled heritage and a very bright future, Stoke-on-Trent is officially recognised as the world capital of ceramics. My mum, however, was not a fan of one of the most famous brands, Wedgwood. She didn't like the look or feel of it. She said it felt coarse and unfriendly. How pottery can be unfriendly perplexes me, but she was adamant that it was something she didn't want in the house. 
We did have a few bits, however, and they were mainly gifted to us from elderly relatives who used to dish out Wedgwood items as birthday presents and Christmas presents, and Mum would only get them out and put on display if that particular relative was coming for a visit. While the plates were out, she'd hoped that the cat would knock it off a shelf, but our cat was far too nimble to do anything like that. And did you know there's even a Facebook group which is dedicated to people like me? It's called Plate Turners of the World Unite. The official Facebook home is for every person who takes great pleasure in turning over the dishes to see if they were made at one of our local potteries. There's also a dining group dedicated this pastime, which celebrates what it is great about the region and the dedication to promoting the wonderful pottery that comes out of it. Just to check the back stamp. As the Potter's Club, they celebrate this by organising lunches and even have guest speakers. Not so long ago, the local newspaper in Stoke-on-Trent, the Evening Sentinel, produced an article dedicated to the art of plate-turning enthusiasts. They asked their readers to send their photographs of Stoke-on-Trent-made pottery spotted around the world, and thousands of pictures were sent in. Last year, Keele University lecturer Rebecca Leach launched one of the first pieces of academic research into the turnover phenomenon. She said that Stoke folk just can't help it, but look to see where the pottery's been made, and are always delighted when they discover it's been manufactured in Stoke-on-Trent or North Staffordshire. The project explored the cultural identity associated with looking for backstamps on the bottom of cups and plates. Dr Leach, who's a senior sociology lecturer, said the act of turning over pottery is a piece of heritage in its own right. It's become part of the story of the area. North Staffordshire is still quite a monocultural area. And she said it'd be interesting to find out if people from ethnic minorities also engage with pottery like this. However, the pottery industry has been going into a steady decline of late, with much cheaper imports of cups and plates. Are people turning over the pottery as much? One of the early signs of the research to emerge was that many Stokies feel a sense of pride in turning over their plates. A lot of people who've worked in the industry want to know if it's a piece they made. They may have family connections with it. One person got in touch who was on a research exhibition in the Arctic and was thrilled to find some pottery from Stoke in the base camp canteen. Plate turners have also been found in East Liverpool, Ohio, where many potters' descendants emigrated to. I know it's something that I'll continue doing until the day I take my last breath. It's just a stokey thing, and I guess I'm proud of it. And Ali has recorded many more of Simpson's stories for future outlooks. We've mentioned the two-term cafe a number of times, but less often the Coventry Music Museum. Dave took the opportunity to visit the museum with Christopher, uh, whom he used to help at Exhall Grange School, together with Christopher's carer, John. 
Hello there, welcome to Coventry Music Museum and it's extremely popular and you'll find it at the top of Ball Hill, Coventry and it's opposite the Zebra Crossing that leads straight into it. Right, I'm outside the Coventry Music Museum, I'm speaking for a gentleman. Hi, my name's Alf and I run the calf. Yeah. Right. And you're wearing a two-tone uh, porky pie hat, isn't it? Well, yes, that's right, a two-tone pork pie hat. <laughs> so, so how long has the calf been open here? Uh, Eleven and a half years. So, so what do you call it? Uh, two-tone calf. Yeah? Yeah, that's what we call the calf. Right, I'm in the two-town cafe with Christopher and his girl with John. And uh, thanks to you, we're going to have a Caribbean breakfast, aren't we? 100% want to try Caribbean breakfast. Never tried it before. And Christopher is looking forward to it. Well, it contains jerk sausage. Any idea what jerk sausage is? Oh, jerk sausage, spicy sausage. Spicy thing, so it's spicy. So we're going to try all of us, so let's wait and see. ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっ
is the lead singer and she's my daughter. Oh, that's excellent. So that's oh, well lovely. Done. Yes, so um, well actually love it. We love working here. Um, we meet so many wonderful people. We've had lots yeah. of stars. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, um, a door upstairs, which is a star door, where people have signed from different bands and... Hazel O'Connor, um, Neville Staple, Roddy Radiation, um, um, loads and loads of people, you know, the Primitives, of course, and um, Horace Panther from the Specials, um, loads. You'll, you'll be able to see when you go up. And this is that number one hit by Lieutenant Pigeon, Mouldy Old Doe. Downstairs in the Coventry Music Museum, where, where you can pick up instruments and play them. And here we are. Oh, when the saints, hallelujah, 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 I want to be among the number. Oh, when the saints, hallelujah. A telephone here. Yeah. You're supposed to wave your hands around it, and it plays a tune. Yeah, and that's the pheromone. <laughs> Upstairs now is the fabulous museum, and here's the ghost town car used in the video Ghost Town by the Specials. recorded at Woodbine Studios, Woodbine Street Studios in Leamington Spa in April 1981, produced by John Collins, engineered by John Rivers. And we've got a setup here with uh, about Delia Derbyshire, the Radiophonic Workshop Tableau. And it's got Delia Derbyshire's actual personal tape recorder here, and she was the one that created the Doctor Who theme and she was the pioneer of electronic synthesizer music she actually started listening to various sounds like the air raid sirens and she gradually started to mix these sounds and that became the uh, electronic music fantastic well I interviewed Frank Ifield once at the Albany Theatre and I asked him about the Coventry Music Museum that he had visited that day. Yeah, they're all volunteers, and yeah. your name's Jim. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. It's a fantastic museum, isn't it? Yeah, it keeps it all alive, doesn't it? And yeah. Yeah. And it's music going back a long way. Oh, absolutely, it's, it's yeah. Delia Derbyshire's yeah. electronic music electronic music pioneer yeah. fantastic and the ghost town car yeah I've just been s sitting in that that's yeah. 
probably the best exhibit really you know in terms yeah. of photos and everything it's yeah but yeah there's well, a lot of history in here isn't there there is certainly yeah Frank Caulfield stuff oh yes yeah yes of course a lot course. of people forget he's Coventry born you know he is yes yeah. he, he lives around the corner to me okay yes fantastic yeah, and he, he sure. had about yeah. he had about four number one hits. Yeah, one of them was "I Remember You." Yeah, most famous one. That's it. That's wonderful. Got a copy of it round the corner. How do you feel about your name being up on the wall in the Coventry Music Museum in the Two-Tone Square there? You've yeah. been there today, haven't you? Yes, I was, and I really did enjoy that because we had a nice uh, crowd of people and a lot of them I hadn't met before. We sat down, we chatted about things, you know, and it was good. Um, yes, and I'd rather enjoy the fact that you know, I'm recognised in my own home territory. That's great. You're extremely proud of the fact you were born in Coventry. Oh, yeah. You're a Coventry kid. Yeah, and then you and always sky blues, blues, right? Even though yeah. I didn't, even I've spent three years of my life here. I still have my comedy kids. Right, thank you, and that's all from the Coventry Music uh, Museum, and he's bye-bye from, from Christopher, bye! Bye! And he's bye-bye from Charles! Bye, David, well, thank you for meeting us. That's been fantastic, thank yeah, you very watch. much. Yeah. And he's bye-bye from me, Dave Monk, thank you, bye! Bye! That visit to the Coventry Music Museum concludes this week's programme, uh, but your next outlook will be in two weeks' time, not one week, two weeks' time, as we're having our own little Easter break next week. In the meantime, enjoy your Easter eggs, and we'll be back in two weeks. So it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewing. <laughs>